This is the Women Talking About Learning podcast. My name is Andrew Jacobs. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode, the evidence-based one of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. This episode has been requested by people who fed up of, of some of the pseudoscience and, and legends uh, being used in learning. And to discuss it, we've two very different but very qualified guests. Our first guest is Carrie Walton. She hails from the northeast of England, near Newcastle. You'd never know it from her accent. Uh, but Carrie is a, a learning technologist for the NHS, producing all manner of learning programs, interventions. And that's from e learning to virtual reality and everything in between. She's also an educational researcher, uh, currently working on an MPhil, looking at engagement with education-specific CPD among dual-qualified professionals. And although she's fairly new to the, the world of learning and development, she's racked up a fairly respectable portfolio uh, of qualifications, of work, uh, and is always on the lookout for, for new opportunities to add to that. Our second guest is, is Joan Keeville. She's probably best known for being the chair of the e-learning network, uh, who, if you don't know, they're a not-for-profit community network whose purpose is to facilitate knowledge sharing um, in digital learning and across the wider L&D community. And I'm really pleased to, to say that I've been able to help out on some e-learning, activi- e-learning network activities in the past. Joan also runs her own e-learning consultancy uh, called Designs on Learning, which she set up after leaving the BBC training and development function in 2008 and you might have have maybe encountered some of her work there Um, she worked with Nigel Payne and and Nick Shackleton-Jones at the BBC and she's also been a judge of uh, the annual technology awards since 2011. This was recorded in in early November 2020 via Zoom and we had a little bit of internet noise on the recording. We've managed to take out most of the squelches and hope it doesn't affect your enjoyment of this episode. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Carrie and Joan talking about evidence base. Hi Carrie, how are you? Hi Joan, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Welcome to this, uh, this, glorious, uh, this glorious northeast weather. Oh yeah, I don't know how it is down your way. <laughs> Andrew's invited us to take part in this uh, to talk about evidence base yeah um, I it's a good meaty topic off, I wondered if we should start off by trying to define what we think it is do you want to go first yeah so uh, so I think we we could approach this in two different ways couldn't we so so me as a as a as a sort of educational researcher and um, uh, like working in technology enhanced learning I tend to I tend to view it as evidence-based practice um where I guess we could also look at it from a from a um, from the point of view of kind of you know collecting evidence based on our learning. Um, so for me, as I say, I, I tend to, I tend to look at it from the evidence based practice point of view. So that's kind of using kind of contextually relevant um, sort of quote unquote scientific information to support what we do in in, in our practice, um, sort of decisions and choices and things like that. Is that partly because you're working in a medical setting in the NHS? Um, yeah, could, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and I, I've got—I'm quite sort of sciencey by background anyway. You know, I just—I like—I like 
proof of things you know I, I like I like having something to support a decision so I want to I always I mean fundamentally I guess what we're doing is trying to trying to make the best possible outcomes for our learners that's that's absolutely what we're doing so for me if I can use evidence to support what I'm doing and say well the reason I did it this way is because there's some good strong evidence you know from a, from a bunch of other practitioners to support that then then great um yeah so what about you what's what how how do you view evidence well I mean I've been in this business a long time I, I think when I look at evidence part of me tends to think about the compliancy learning that I've been working on for years and years and the point about evidence there is everybody's after evidence of completion they want to tick these boxes mm. that people have been trained but yeah. actually it's completely fatuous because they're not checking whether anybody's behavior has changed or they've actually learned anything they're only tracking completion and as a, a, a judge on the learning technologies awards we're always looking for evidence of impact um, so evidence you know and we don't always get it I mean that tends to separate the wheat from the chaff but I think with the whole point about evidence is that there is an evidence base out there if you look for it and if yeah. you're prepared to use it and, and I'm prepared to gather it I mean you know there's, there's nothing this is is, this is one thing I, you know, I keep trying to get across to, to colleagues and peers and what have you. Is that there's nothing wrong with going collecting the evidence yourself. You know, you, you don't have to, you don't have to go out looking for the evidence that's already there. Like you are a practitioner, you can collect it, you can collect that evidence yourself and use it in your own practice. And I guess that's that's where the contextual aspect comes in for me because you know me, I work in the NHS currently, and things are really different here to private sector. You know, the the way the way that we do statutory and mandatory training, like you say with. Uh, um, with kind of medical related um, medical related training um, it's a completely different ball game so we have to collect different kinds of evidence to, to to support what we're doing yeah and maybe that is an issue for us as a profession that actually do we have to collect evidence at all or is it all right for people just to go off and do what they think is the right thing to do without really having a, an evidence base themselves to back it up yeah yeah. Are you, do, would you, do you use evidence a lot in your, in your practice? You know, where, where do you stand on that? Well, I guess if I'm totally honest here, um, I think I've gathered evidence ad hoc throughout my career and I apply it um, maybe even subliminally, you know, without even really thinking about it. But on the other hand, I do actually try and keep myself up to date, go to conferences virtually or otherwise um, and if you do find something that's of interest, you know, you do think about applying it. So, and, and I think I, I used to work in the BBC, in BBC training, where I was lucky enough to, to work with people like Nick Shackleton-Jones and Nigel Payne. And one of the first things I was asked to do when I got there was to run a blended learning programme for face-to-face -face trainers. Nice. And I wanted to shake them out of their, it wasn't complacency exactly, they were very good at what they did but they were professional, you know, like camera people, that kind of thing. Um, and they hadn't got a lot of training in learning. So I brought in a professor from Lancaster, John Burgoyne, who did a session for them about learning theory uh, and all the different approaches to learning theory, what works, what doesn't work, why you might want a particular design. And I think that stayed with me since what, 2002 or something. Um, you know, I've used that in my head when I'm doing design. But I think I've got, I want to ask you another question. Do you think, mm -hmm. Does it matter if we base our practice on evidence or not? Do you think the learners really notice one way or the other? 
Ooh, now that is a great question. And it's one that I actually ask myself all the time. Um, Cause I think, so I have this, I have a nickname uh, with, a, with a couple of colleagues. They, they refer to me as the architect um, because I'm, I'm the one who's all for making sure that there's substance underneath the kind of fancy facade of, of the e-learning and what have you. Um, and that there's like solid design based on kind of proven techniques and, and theories. Um, but I, and, and I do often question, you know, especially when, when you're gathering happy sheets and, and asking. No, not happy sheets. Asking learners about uh, <laughs> the dreaded happy sheet. Yeah. Um, when you're asking learners to evaluate, you know, essentially evaluate the quality of the learning. And I just think, well, you know, the learners aren't best placed to, to comment on that. They don't know that you've got some, you know, some piece of evidence-based practice going on underneath that, that supports the learning in the long term. Um so learners might prefer a course or a session that looks all kind of whizzy and fancy and engaging, but actually it's not having the long-term impact that, that is needed. So I kind of I think it shouldn't, um, it shouldn't really matter whether the learners notice or not, because it'll, it'll show up in the long-term evaluations. Um, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what you think about that. I, it's something I question all the time. Well, I think it's different, obviously, if you're in a virtual or a face-to-face -face session to if you're doing e-learning. But if you if you have got that contact with the learners, then I think you can judge for yourself if what you're doing is is you know having an impact, is being successful there and then, because mm -hmm. you'll see that engagement, participation, good discussion. You'll see people you know with light bulbs going off above their head when they suddenly get something and get a deeper understanding of it. When you're creating e-learning, I think you're trying to do that. Um, you're trying to design it in a way that it will have an effect and get some kind of traction. Because as we know, you know, along with happy sheets, the click next e-learning is just, you know, the pits. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking oh, at yeah. things like, um, you know, branching scenarios or scenarios with, with consequences where people are actually being asked yeah. to benchmark what their assumptions are about something against what we're trying to say to them well this is what the organization expects of you and this is why and if you can just get that traction where they're just thinking well actually maybe I don't know as much as I thought I did or maybe what I assumed was okay is not okay then I think you can you know you're making a start but if you haven't got the design in there that that you know the evidence behind it that says you can't you need to get people to reflect to get them to learn and change behavior. If you haven't got that, you know, going through your design like a like lettering in a stick of rock, mm. then you know, I don't think it's it's necessarily going to be very effective. It's a it's a good one. Where so we're using branch and scenario uh, things at the minute as well. Um, we I got quite I got quite upset actually because we've been talking about doing it for a while and trying to convince some of the stakeholders to to actually go with it's proving more difficult um, because it's quite it's quite lengthy and involved to to design um, but just as we were thinking about doing it uh, there was that episode of Black Mirror that came out on uh, on on Netflix that used the same sort of principle and I was I was sort of going oh man like what we want to do that at work please please somebody watch this so we can do it <laughs> if only you have the Netflix budgets <laughs> that would be good. That would be really good, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, we have uh, we have um, well, I mean, I work in the NHS, so we have to we have to justify every every cost that we do. You know, it's, it's public money that we're spending. Um, well, no, I think what what about from your own perspective, your own um, you know, our, our I say our own CPD, our, our continuous professional development uh, as professionals. In the, am I right in thinking in in the, in the field of medicine, the NHS, etc., people have a CPD 
quota that they have to meet every year to maintain their professional standards? Well, so funnily enough, this is actually the basis of my research. So I'm doing an MPhil based on um, based on the CPD of educators who are kind of dual professionals. So, for example, uh, a nurse who's who, you know, say works in the NHS is mandated through um, through the NMC to do a certain amount of CPD every you know, every three years. I think it's 35 hours every three years. But if they're also a qualified educator, you know, if they've, if they've, they've gone through their you know, what used to be petals, kettles, nettles, whatever. Um, there's no mandate to do any any kind of CPD. And so in theory, somebody could could qualify as an educator and then, you know, not not maintain any of, you know, not maintain currency with any of that practice. So within a year, they're out of date. You know, they're out of date with their, with their you know, with their methods. I mean, look at, look at what's happened in, you know, we can't deny it, what's happened in 2020. Um, the, the entire world of learning shifted across to, to more kind of digital friendly programs. And we've been trying to do it for years. You know, we've been banging that drum for years saying it needs to happen. But now everybody's hands being forced and suddenly people are having to try and get up to date and get up to speed with technology and with aspects of um, aspects of digital provision that that actually means that that the CPD, you know, that they're, they're now starting to realise that they should have been keeping up to date with that CPD all along. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan of this, and like I say, I'm, it's it's something I'm it's something I'm researching how you know how how people actually do maintain currency when they're when they're mandated to do to do some CPD as a as a nurse or medical professional, but then they also have the education side of things. You know, edu- digital education is not voicing over a PowerPoint and sticking it online. That's that's not that's not e-learning. It's not it's not evidence based. <laughs> You know, coming back to our topic, that is that's you know, evidence does not show that that's a strong way to learn. Yeah. But well, I, I think that is an issue that, as a profession, we don't actually, you know, we, we don't have any any requirements to to keep ourselves up to date. We don't. We used to. We used to though, didn't we? The 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 IFL the Institute for Learning used to used to mandate it. Was it that they mandated it, or was it just strongly encouraged? And the the, the ETF do still strongly encourage it. Um, for teachers, because um, so I'm a PGC qualified teacher, but but work in the in the sort of learning and development sector. Um, so and there's nothing there's nothing in the in the sort of L and D world, is there? It's all kind of voluntary engagement. It's a shame. I know that develop helping people to develop something we've been trying to do through the e learning network. Yeah, yeah. You know, through our various webinars and events and that kind of thing. Um, but just going back to our, our design. Um, you know, does it? Do you think it makes a difference in the way we design and deliver ourselves as a profession? Because I think, I suppose, without really thinking too much about it, I do always. I'm always reading stuff. Um, I'm following certain people, like you know Jane Bozarth um, from the Learning Guild. I've been lucky enough to attend the Learning and Development Conference in summer by Will Talheimer, and also that was a good one. Yeah, I yeah, DevLearn. Now, part of me thinks, oh, I've heard that before it's not new um, and I have to park that and, and you know not worry too much about it because there's always going to be a gem in there if you're if you're open to it and if you're listening oh, yeah. you're prepared to reflect on your practice yeah so I, I man you are absolutely echoing my thoughts at the minute so I'm fairly new to the I guess I'm fairly new to the scene I've been I've qualified as a teacher maybe four years three or four years ago um, and I've been working in L&D for around about five or six years I lose track you know I think once you get to 40 you just start losing track of years um 
Excuse so me. I'm, I'm fairly... <laughs> I qualified as a teacher in the mid-70s, so <laughs> long memories. <laughs> I'll, I'll, not tell, I'll not tell you what year I was born. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, but, so I've only... I've only and actually I've only been working in technology and hand for two years so I've, I've, I've been in this role just coming up two years but I feel like I've kind of jumped in with with both feet um uh, I've lost my train of thought there I, I can't remember what was your question again about basing you know doing the learning design ourselves based on a, 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 an evidence base oh I was definitely going to say something something quite profound I'm sure well you said yourself you're doing your MPhil you're very keen on evidence yeah you're not, I don't know that you're, fi- are you finding much to, to back up your research? No, there's a, there's a distinct lack of, of educational research within the NHS, actually. It's quite, it's quite, um, it's, it's notable by its absence, put it that way. Um, there's not, there's not a great deal of, there's a lot of research goes on in the NHS, but not a great deal of, um, of educational research. Um, I, I kind of feel like the NHS, the, the educators within the NHS are a sort of forgotten group, actually. You know, I, I, there's there's not much out there. So much so, actually, that um, a colleague and myself um, are talking about um, setting up, uh, you know, a sort of NHS educational researchers network because there's no real kind of support. And I think this, uh, I get the impression this is kind of industry-wide. There's not a great deal out there to support people who want to carry out research, you know, about... Um, uh, about how to how to go about doing it, how to get published, how to get maybe funding and support and things like that. So we're we're we're, we're thinking about doing that just as a means of 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 encouraging more kind of grassroots evidence based practice and evidence based research. Well, I think what you're talking about there is networking and sharing. Yeah, definitely. And that's without banging the ELN drum too much. You know, just getting that out, information out there. When I came upon a uh, a Jane Bozarth research paper for the Learning Guild about diversity training, what works and what doesn't. I immediately shared it on my network because it's such a topical issue at the moment. And actually, yeah. I mean, the, the, the key solution was don't call it diversity training because it puts people <laughs> off. Oh, yeah. God. And I'm, I'm about to, I'm hoping to get a commission from a client where I will be developing a diversity programme for them. And when they say, you know, the training doesn't work standalone, here's the evidence. We've done this research. You know that it's good research because it's full of academic rigor and references yeah. and stuff. Um, and when you when you know that uh, it's not going to work if you do a standalone piece and it's all about awareness, and you call out all different stereotypes, actually you could just be making people more biased uh, without realizing it. And the best thing she said on one occasion was where a company said, "We're going to launch this diversity academy, but not everybody can come. You have to be." invited to join it and she said they were there was a huge influx of people you know trying to attend because it wasn't mandatory you know so yeah, that kind of thing can really surprise you but it makes you think okay so if she's got this body of evidence about diversity and inclusion training what can I glean from that and then apply mm. when I'm working with this other client um, on, on a new diversity program and one of the things I would yeah. be asking is what is going to wrap around this particular initiative i think it'll be e-learning you know what will wrap around it because the evidence says it won't work if it's a standalone but if you do a campaign and if you have xyz around it then it'll work much better and that's that's a that's a good point to make actually that the that that we we should be learning from each other you know there's 
um, I remembered my point from before actually um, about the it was it was after you mentioned the learning and development conference um, I just thought actually one of the one of the things that I took away so despite me being really new to the industry one of the things that I, that I took away and I actually think it's more valuable than it sounds is that the things that people were talking about and the sort of the, the evidence that they were bringing forward supports what I'm doing in my role so I you know if nothing else I took away all right I'm on the right tracks you know yeah. I'm doing I'm doing the same sort of things as other people in the industry and actually I mean like to me that's that's good evidence as well you know just to know that I'm on the right track and that we're, that we're you know that I'm not falling behind just because I'm getting into yeah. the industry um but yeah a good point you make there about learning from each other you know doing that network and having a having a network of of support and contacts in the industry you know kind of far and wide that that you can learn from and that you can take practice from and you know sort of um I want to say I want to say plagiarize but I don't want to say plagiarize you know sort of like steal steal kind of good practice from I don't I, I don't want to use the term best practice but steal good practice yeah so recycling what's good and what works because exactly yeah do you know it works because it's properly researched yeah I mean you could you could compare it to something that everybody knows doesn't work but is still out there um for example, dare I say, learning styles. Um, where <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We've had Halloween, man. Don't, don't give me any more frights. <laughs> People can get hung up on a particular approach um, or, or maybe, maybe you know, it gets put into the ether and people grasp an aspect of it, <sighs> but they don't dig deeper and they don't really understand the bigger picture. So they take an aspect of it and kind of make that their all. Um, I'm not just talking about learning and development here. I mean, it happens all the time. Oh yeah, great, great example of that actually. When um, in in a um, in a a number of a number of sessions that I've seen over the over the few years, um, people have quoted this um, this research from uh, from Albert Morabian, um, and it's about it's it's his oh what is it you call it again it's like a 73855 rule or something about communication it's all to do with kind of non-verbal communication and my god it has been misquoted to the nth degree everybody just completely misquoted and you get the sort of you get these you get these kind of google educators who um who sort of you know find a, a nice whizzy looking slide or something on on google and drop it into their powerpoint and what have you and class that as evidence-based well it's not because they haven't they haven't looked at the source material you know if you're talking about doing good evidence-based practice or using good evidence you need to be making sure that your sources are valid you know you need to you need to go back to the source material make sure that that that, that you're quoting the right thing you know and that, that you haven't ended up with with a you know it turns into a sort of uh, like a chinese whisper doesn't it that that just you know ends up wrong over time and that's exactly what's happened with like learning styles and oh dare i say it mbti oh yeah. anytime anybody mentions mbti to me i just i could my eyes just want to roll back so far on me well, let, let's say i mean um, i think you can uh, get that situation in, a, in an organization as well though because you get commissioned to do some uh, learning and development solution and the subject matter expert the sme will come to you and say this is the problem and i need you to fix it um, and this is what you need to do. And they give you whatever, like a 50 slide PowerPoint, whatever. But actually that SME's perspective on what the problem is, I think needs to be tested. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, where's, where's their evidence that identifies that that's a problem? Are, are they, are they just basing that on sort of anecdotal evidence or are they just looking at a, 
are they looking at the sort of top level skimming the surface and just going well i think this is the problem instead of actually looking into what it is it's the, it's the whole five wise thing isn't it you know I why has this happened well why has that happened well why has that happened yeah and i think as a as a, if you're moving from being a sort of straightforward instructional designer to be more of a performance consulting type person uh, you know which is quite a big discussion at the moment in LD. I think that's the point where you say can I speak to some typical learners can I speak yeah. to managers can I just dig a bit deeper because I need to be clear what's the ideal world behavior versus what are people doing now and then we can analyze the gap we can mm -hmm. confirm that it is learning, you know, a learning solution that will that could fix the problem, or it might not be, because it could be a process thing that's just yeah. And then I think if you can then gather that kind of evidence, um, and then you can test out some solutions, even you know, if you've got the chance to have a focus group or just speak to some people, you know, you can find out whether they would all be happy to do some e-learning in a particular style, or whether they would need something more. Uh, you know, like a virtual face-to-face -face or whatever, um, because and and then I think a key thing for me is also that the what happens when you've done that learning intervention, because um, so many times, especially again with compliance learning, you know, that they want you to complete the the learning and then they want to tick the box to say that you're fixed now, you're sorted, and yeah. nobody ever looks for any evidence of a change in behaviour. And I think that's where the managers need to come in to bridge the gap between the learning and the performance, because the managers then need to be the ones looking for evidence that something has, has changed. And they're responsible for performance, so they're completely the best people to, to judge that. But I get frustrated when the learning and development people are asked to do a solution and then they walk away and they never sort of follow it through. Do you have that problem? Oh, John, you are yeah you are to, you are my hero you are my new hero you are you are preaching to the choir friend absolutely um and a, a, a sort of secondary aspect of that is i think when people are designing a learning a sort of learning intervention anyway they're not thinking enough at the time of actually doing the design they're not thinking enough about um about the evaluation you know how they're going to evaluate it you need to like you've got to think about that at the design stage you can't just you can't do that you know do that sort of evidence gathering at the beginning figure out what it is you need to do design the package and then think about how you're going to evaluate it you need to be you need to almost be thinking about how you're going to evaluate it before the design takes place you know yeah. what is it that i need to actually measure at the end and then design it based on those on those changes that need to happen and i just think that doesn't happen it doesn't happen enough or certainly, you know, in the, the few the few people I've talked to, the few organisations I've, I've kind of worked with, it doesn't seem to happen as much as it should. Um, do you think, do you think L&D folk do challenge like that? I mean, how comfortable would you feel? I mean, I'm not working inside an organisation. Yeah. How comfortable would you feel challenging an SME and saying, well, I'm not sure that you've, you've answered that question? Well, so I... I I mean, I think I would feel really comfortable with it, but but I'm in a really fortunate position that in that particularly within the organisation I work in, we we do have a lot of agency, we do have a lot of um, uh, a lot of scope to to challenge these things. You know, where we are actually considered the, the subject matter experts in terms of in terms of learning oh, well, in terms of technology enhanced learning certainly. Um, so we we do get a lot of um, a lot of scope to to make these decisions. 
Um, however, time constraints and what have you do unfortunately mean that, that a lot of time we do just have to say, right, yeah, we can give you this, this kind of short-term solution. You know, at the minute, for example, we, we, you know, we're, trying to, we're trying to move a lot of things online. And for the time being, that really does just mean recording a, you know, a talking head of someone giving a presentation and then bashing that up online. And we'll keep saying everybody it's a short-term solution. But generally, we, we, we have a lot of autonomy um, in, in terms of making, making change. So I, I'm, I think I'm really lucky in that sense because it certainly doesn't seem to be the sort of the, the the status quo across the industry. So tell me, let's get right down to the nitty gritty then. Oh, go on then. Give me an example of when you've used evidence to influence your practice, your, your learning design or whatever. Ooh. Okay. So, um, a couple of examples, I guess, spring to mind really. Um, so when I was doing my PGCA, I started that in, blimey, I start, I think, did I do that in 20, I started that in 2015, maybe, maybe thereabouts, um, and learned quite quickly about the flipped classroom approach. Okay. Absolutely loved it. I wasn't working for the NHS at the time, but learned about the flipped classroom approach. Um, it just sounded absolutely amazing. It sounded so sensible. You know, why, why go into the classroom and have somebody lecture at you and then go home and have to figure it out for yourself? Um, and I, I want to make the distinction here between flipped classroom and blended. There's a real, there's a real distinction. Right. So when I learned about it, took it straight back to my workplace, tried it out, you know, did my own kind of, you know, evidence collecting, tried it out, did some sort of A-B testing um, as to whether it would work or not. And it did. So that's, that was, that was my first kind of real, that was my first application of evidence based practice for me. Right. You know, and and I wasn't I didn't want to make the assumption that it would work just because it's evidence based elsewhere doesn't mean that it's going to work in that organization. It's absolutely contextually based. Context um, yeah. to, oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and another another good example, actually, um, we've um, stemming from the learning development conference, actually, I, I feel like we've mentioned it a couple of times, actually. It was it was a good conference. Um, there was somebody there was somebody did a session and talked about um uh like spaced repetition you know mm -hmm. so like the way that kids learn with kind of flip like flip cards and things yeah. um is it called, called flip cards flashcards flashcards that's what i meant um so this whole thing about spaced repetition and i wanted to try and apply that in our in me e-learning and i've done a couple of i've done a couple of online courses um a couple of online sessions that used a similar sort of principle and i found it really worked so it kind of works on this basis that you learn a bit recap it learn a bit recap it learn a bit recap it you know and then and then recap everything at the end of a segment um so i'm trying i haven't i haven't done any sort of formal testing of it yet but the, the, i've got a couple of i've got a couple of bits of e-learning in in development at the minute that i'm trying to use that principle you know trying to use that 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 aspect of spaced repetition so time will tell whether it whether it works whether it works properly or not but it, it certainly it certainly seemed to have good evidence behind it so I, I think it's worth it's worth a try and if it doesn't work I, you know I just, yeah. just change it don't I? Yeah. No, well, I think when I was reading one of Jane's reports uh, from the Learning Guild um, I actually I quite like you said earlier it reinforced something that I was doing um, it's about there's a report on psychological safety uh, and it's talking about even just something as simple as giving people feedback on a quiz if yeah. you tell them everything they got wrong it can be really quite upsetting and threatening for people uh, and another one another approach like doing scenarios is instead of giving them feedback that was right that was wrong you actually give them the consequences of that decision yeah and I use that a lot in my scenario writing for compliance so you know you've got somebody 
in a situation where, well, if you take health and safety as a very basic example, you know, you, you can say to people, right, this person has the choice, they need to get, reach something on a high shelf, they need to go up a ladder, blah, blah, blah. What do they do? Or what, what would you advise them to do? And then if they choose the wrong ladder, then you actually say to them, well, unfortunately, they fell off and they've now broken their back and they're in a wheelchair or, you know, some such yeah. thing. Um, and, the cons and I've found that the consequences of giving people feedback, it's very hard to kind of get your head in the right place to write it because you keep wanting to say, well, this could have happened or this might happen. But you actually have to say, this is what happened because you made that decision. And it really seems to get through to people. And now reading Jane's report, it seems that, you know, you need to, you know, it's better to give people the consequences. It's kind of non-judgmental. Mm. It doesn't then get back to them individually and make them think, they're a failure uh, they can actually relate and it can make them reflect more so I and, think and I think that, yeah and that's where those branch the sort of branching scenario type kind of videos or, or what have you come in come in really handy we we've tried we we did it we put a sample a kind of sample one together just to use on our show reel to, to show people what um uh you know how well it could work and we did it on kind of communication you know a sort of like how to have a difficult conversation uh, type scenario um, and and it's good because, like you say, it shows people the actual consequences of making a different decision. You know, it shows you the different ways that that, that things can, you know, how easily something can go wrong. You know, mm. and it's uh, it's a it's a really it's a really good way of showing. But again, you've, it's it's about it's about collecting that evidence to show that people have had a better experience because of that. You know, because of using that technique. So I think it would be fair to say that we both feel that using an evidence base to influence your practice. It's just a no-brainer. Oh, it's a total no-brainer for me. I mean, I'm I'm a giant nerd anyway. I, I love I love reading about things. And uh, me, my husband, my husband quite often says that uh, that I do actually have the word nerd tattooed on my head in invisible ink. Um, so uh, maybe maybe if you shine a black light on me, it'll it'll show up. I don't know. I, I just it doesn't. You don't have to be as you know. You don't have to be nerdy about it. I think you just have to recognise that being a reflective practitioner will yeah. make a better practitioner. And in order to yeah, challenge your own existing learning assumptions, whatever, it's a good idea to just keep trolling the evidence out there. And if you can't find it, maybe think about doing your own. Well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. You know, it's there's there's uh, you know, if even if you don't know where to start, you know, even if you weren't sure where to start with with kind of gathering evidence or or, or finding evidence, just you know, start on Twitter. You know, follow follow some really reputable um, uh, accounts on Twitter. You know, such as the eLearning Network or um, uh, you know, uh, sort of big organisations and things, and look to see what they're retweeting. You know, look to see what conversations they're having. Join some of the join some of the, the chats. You know, there's like the, the LD Connect chat on a Friday. You know, join in some of those and 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 find out what people are talking about, and then go away and look stuff up. You know, God, there's there's absolute there's endless information out there on the internet. Just just be aware that you have to be critical of some of it you know don't take everything at face value you know make sure you make sure you're you're you're, you're, you're being critical of it um, but I, I would say that as a as a as a researcher well, i agree every word yeah that's, that's good uh, advice that's great thanks very much yeah thanks for that Jonah. that's a that's a good chat i'm glad uh, i'm glad we're both on the same on the same page about evidence uh <laughs> I wonder how many people listening to Carrie and Joan have considered or used A and B testing to establish the efficacy of their activities in learning. Joan's comment about looking for data, for example in diversity, was especially interesting. 
This is particularly important if we want to be taken seriously within the learning and development community. But as Hannah and Laurie said last week, it's probably even more important for women. We hope the internet burps, noises, squidges, whatever you like to call them, squelches, didn't cause too much distraction from what was a a really interesting and in-depth conversation. Carrie can be found on LinkedIn and Twitter, and the details will be in the show notes. And the same as Joan, also on LinkedIn and Twitter, and again, you'll find links in the show notes. We said last time that imposter syndrome was getting lots and lots of interest, and that we want to make something special with that episode. So to make it really inclusive, we're going to feature lots of women's voices. So, if you're a woman and have an opinion on imposter syndrome, we want to hear from you. All you need to do is send us an MP3 file of up to three minutes. Make sure you tell us your name at the start and just tell us what imposter syndrome means to you. That might be what it stopped you doing, how you've seen it in other people, what happens when you feel it, how you've overcome it, what inspires you to overcome it. And who inspires you to overcome it? It can be anything. Send your three-minute MP3 files via email to us, hello at larn.com. That's hello at larn, L-L-A-R-N, dot com. And what we'll do is stitch them all together and create a podcast where everyone who has an opinion on imposter syndrome can tell us what you think about it. We'll be publishing the imposter syndrome episode in January 2021. So your deadline to send us your MP3 files is Friday the 18th of December 2020. Thank you for listening. Remember to like and subscribe to Women Talking About Learning and we'll see you again soon. You have been listening to the Women Talking About Learning podcast. Women Talking About Learning is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon Music and Alexa, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or your favourite podcast app. You can get in touch with Women Talking About Learning via email on Twitter at WTAL underscore podcast or via our website, womentalkingaboutlearning.com. Make sure you tune in next time for more women talking about learning, for more of the signal, none of the noise.